0: Now, let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, please grab your Bibles. We're in Mark chapter 10 today, looking at verses 23 through 31. And if you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back there. Please feel free to grab one of those. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that you've got the Word of God in your hands. And as you turn there, let me review from last week The Holy Spirit of Almighty God, He taught us the irony of heaven. And we learn the irony of heaven from a young man known as the rich young ruler. And the irony is this, that little children who possess nothing, they can do nothing, and even though they offer nothing to Almighty God, the kingdom of heaven is theirs, versus this young man who was a leader in the community. He's an elder at the synagogue, and he has worked and worked and worked. He served the Lord week in, week out. He's built a very impressive resume, uh, and he still lacks one thing, and it just happened to be the most important thing. He didn't have a relationship with God. He thought he did. He thought that his... His serving, he thought that his good deeds was enough. He also thought that he was morally good enough. And he found out wrong. Jesus, he was not impressed with his false humility or his worldly resume. And Jesus impressed upon this, this young man that the way to inherit eternal life is to come to Jesus as a child. In complete and utter dependence on him. So we're not to trust in ourselves, we're not to trust in our stuff. We are to trust in Jesus. And what we see as a weakness, right? Jesus, once again, as we go verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus turns our worldview upside down. Uh, because what we see as a weakness, Jesus sees as a strength. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. So Jesus said this to Paul. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected when you're weak in your weakness. So Paul says, you know, so I'm going to most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me, may live in me. So I'm going to take pleasure in my weaknesses and all the insults and all the hardships and all the persecutions all the difficulties in life, I'm going to rejoice in those things for the sake of Christ because when I'm weak, I'm strong. So what we see is problems. Jesus sees those problems. He perfects our character with those things. And that's where we're at today, guys. We're going to see Jesus use this conversation with the rich young ruler as a teaching moment. So that was a review from last week. Let's pick up the narrative from last Sunday. Basically, we saw Jesus, well, we saw this young man turn his back on Jesus, right? Why did he do that? Well, because the rich young ruler, he didn't want God at the cost of his gold. He wanted God and money. Jesus, funny thing about Jesus is that even though the young man turned his back on Jesus, Jesus didn't turn his back on him. Jesus loved this man, and and he told him the truth. Jesus told him what he needed to hear, even if he didn't want to hear it. That's what love is, isn't it? Biblical love challenges people for their own moral good. Just as a good doctor diagnoses and prescribes the proper treatment for physical health, Regardless of how unpleasant the medication may be or, or how radical the surgery may be, the physician, he takes an oath to save your physical life. Jesus, he did much more than that for the rich young ruler. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus prescribe eternal life to this, to this young man, and unfortunately, he chose eternal death. So today we see the sequel to this story. Jesus uses this rich young ruler, once again, as a teaching moment for all the wealth and all the riches and all the possessions and all his stuff. And some of you are like, I don't think I even want to hear this sermon today. I like shiny things. Right? Well, stay with me. Although... You know, this lesson was taught 2,000 years ago, the truth and the impact of what Jesus has to say here. it, It is vital for us today. Why is that? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 to give us the full picture of the narrative today. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and he knelt down before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all of these things from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said, well, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you're going to have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And then Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were astonished at his words. So again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished. And they were saying to one another, Well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, Well, with man... It's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. And Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. And truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, more houses and more brothers and sisters, more mothers and children, more fields, all with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. These are the words from God for us this morning. Father in heaven, what a What an amazing story that you've given us over the last two weeks, and today you're going to wrap this story up by teaching us the reality of loving money. Father, show us that money is not the problem, our hearts are the problem, the love of money. So Lord, I pray that you would meet us and and teach us the deep things of, of your word this morning as we go through this story verse by verse, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Start from the last verse from last week. That was verse 22. So he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So did you notice from last Sunday how grief is tied to his possessions? So in other words, it's his possessions that caused him the grief. Secondly, notice here that Jesus, he never makes anybody do anything they don't want to do. Never. Jesus doesn't run after this man. He doesn't try to talk him into staying. Jesus doesn't apologize for his message. He doesn't even try to soften it. The man made a choice. He walked away from Jesus and Jesus let him. Jesus will love you enough to let you do what you want to do. So can't you just picture Jesus just kind of shaking his head with, with compassion and love as he walks away? And in verse 23, so Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So this young man is walking away from Jesus. He's walking away from eternal life. And Jesus starts looking around at the crowd, and then there's the disciples in the crowd, So Jesus has taken a survey of the situation. He's looking to see what kind of impact this conversation has had on everybody else. Basically, who else is going to leave at this point? Is the cost, is it too high for others in the crowd as well? Jesus says it's hard, how hard it is. What Jesus demands of the wealthy, it's not easy. This is not easy. It requires exceptional godly character and self control. It demands a humility that people, that we don't inherently have. The Holy Spirit, He gives us this kind of of humility in small doses over long periods of time. So theologically, we would call that sanctification. Sanctification, it's where God sanctifies, He purifies, God sets you apart from the world. But what makes this so hard? What makes being godly and having money hard? I had a friend of mine, I have a friend of mine, uh, who had a lot of money at one time. He had more money than he knew what to do with, more money than he could spend, and he eventually lost it all in a bad business deal. And I remember him saying many years ago, he said, oh, Dustin, oh, man, it was so good to have that. It was awesome. I could could pay for cash for everything, and I didn't have anything to worry about. I didn't have to worry about anything. So as I was preparing for this message, that phrase, I didn't have to worry about anything. It just popped in my head. So what makes it hard for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Two things. Number one, self-sufficiency. My friend said, I didn't have to worry about anything. I've got it all taken care of, right? It's this attitude that I don't need God because I can take care of myself. I can provide for my own well-being. And number two, it leads to independence from God. There's this, this self-rule and this self-determination. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick the doors down. I'm going to make things happen. And there's also this idea of this self-legislation. I'm going to live by my own rules, and ultimately, we're talking about self-sovereignty at that point. You know, I'm, I'm my own God. I, I've got it all taken care of. So those are only two, only two things. But back to verse 23. Jesus says, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Whose kingdom? God's kingdom. Yeah, this is not the kingdom of self, right? The unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. No, this is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is a society that sits under God's rule, and people enter heaven. Whenever you hear that that phrase, their kingdom, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, we're talking about heaven. People enter heaven by submitting to God's authority here on earth. Your life today is, um, you could say, you're on spiritual probation God is inviting you to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And what Jesus is saying here is if you have wealth, the human tendency is not to submit to God. It's to be self-sufficient. It's to live independently from him. So wealth tends to give people a false sense of security. So let's see how the crowd responds to all this. Verse 24 the disciples were astonished at his words. So Jesus said to them again, he said, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus knows that many of us will agree that money does not buy happiness. We'll also, especially in this room today, we'll say, you know, that money can't buy heaven. You know, we'll all do this. Amen. Preach it, brother. Right? Uh, are you church people? Right. That's that's a good that's a good response. But why is it? Why is it that most of us, if not all of us, still wish in our hearts that we had just a little bit more? We we just a little bit more. See, Jesus knows this, so he repeats himself here to drive his point home. The 12, they were amazed. They were astonished. We would say they were stunned. Jesus rocked them. They were stunned because the Pharisees taught from Scripture that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. They grew up listening to all of this stuff. Let me show you one of the verses here. Deuteronomy chapter 28. It is written, Now, If you faithfully obey the Lord, your God, and you are careful to follow all of his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord, your God will put you far above all the nations of the earth. All of these blessings will come and they will overtake you. Blessings are going to come and overtake you because you obey the Lord, your God. You're going to be blessed in the city. You're going to be blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed. Your land's produce, the offspring of your livestock including the young of your herds and the newborns of your flocks. Oh, man, your, your baskets, your kneading bowls, they're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed when you come in and when you come out. All you have to do is just breathe, and you're going to be blessed. Now, who doesn't want that? Right? So let's pause for a second. Has anything changed with this mindset with money over the past 2000 years see the prosperity gospel was alive and well back in the first century just as it is today it's easy for us to to take scripture out of context just like it was for them they did the same exact thing some pharisees they had bad hermeneutics their interpretation of the scripture was incorrect they focused in on this they took it out of context they didn't look at the rest of scripture You don't want to do that. That's very bad. Um, And they falsely believe the same thing that we do today. As a culture, we believe that wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Now, secondly, some of the disciples had money. Peter, Andrew, James, John. All these guys were successful business owners, right? They had a a successful fishing business. Matthew, Matthew. The ex-tax collector, he had more money than, than all 11 put together. So it's fair to say that, that, that when the 12 disciples, when they heard these words from Jesus, that there might have been a concern that their wealth might be a barrier for them to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. So prosperity theology is nothing new. There's nothing new, period, Right? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. All of these new things, especially all these spiritual things, a lot of these things that you're listening to now, a lot of this is just rehashed Gnostic stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. We would say it this way, right? The more things change... Yeah, it doesn't matter. Just because we have iPhones now doesn't make us smarter than these guys 2,000 years ago. So verse 24, again, Jesus says to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, Jesus saw that he got quite a rise out of the crowd here, so he repeats himself a second time. But he calls them children. Now, that's interesting. Why would he do that? Most of the 12, these guys are manly men, right? These guys are fishermen. These are manual laborers. They're big and hairy and stinky. They're manly men. (laughs) And Jesus calls them children. Why would he do that? Jesus is pointing them back to the conversation that, that he had with them before the rich young ruler even showed up. Jesus was blessing the children, and in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, he says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're never going to get there. So he called them children because they didn't want to become like little children. They wanted to come on their own terms just like the rich young ruler. So Jesus continues here in verse 25. He says, In fact... It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you're a note taker, I want you to put a little smiley face next to your Bible there at verse 25. Because can't you just see Jesus grinning ear to ear as he says this? This is, uh, this is Hebrew humor. Jesus is pointing to something that's absolutely impossible. Now, just because Jesus is being funny here, or he's being clever, don't let that lessen the impact of what, he's, of what he's saying. The metaphor, it picks the largest animal in all of Israel and the tiniest opening that everybody is familiar with. And, and Jesus is painting this picture. It's impossible. You can't get this thing through this tiny hole. So, this verse 25 is a famous proverb in the first century. Everybody understood what Jesus was talking about here. Now, we have had many attempts throughout church history that um, people have made stuff up to kind of dodge this bullet. The first thing people say well, this, this story only applies to those who are wealthy. And by the way, I know that there are few of us in here today that say, well, that we are we're not wealthy we're not wealthy by the world standards all of us we are certainly wealthy right most of us are more comfortable than king solomon he didn't have central air conditioning or central heat he didn't have lazy boys 200 channels of entertainment he didn't have the internet So don't this lesson applies to all of us today. You know, I think when we hear a sermon on wealth, our sinful human nature somehow manages to place our our, ourself below this invisible wealthy line. Like I'm going to stay below this, whatever that line is. Um so don't think that this message doesn't apply to to you because it does. Um so we've seen all this through church history. Uh, this, this passage has been subjected to many clever theological gymnastics. Let me, let me share one with you. Around the ninth century, a legend spread that uh, Jesus was talking about a, a secret gate that you could enter Jerusalem with. And this gate was supposedly called the Eye of the Needle. Jerusalem had several gates. Each gate had a name. East Gate, West Gate, the Dung Gates, but the uh, the they were these were traditional city gates. But the eye of the needle, it was supposedly this tiny little opening in the wall, and if somebody had a camel and they wanted to get into the city, what they would have to do is they would have to force the camel to get on his knees, and then he would have to push the camel through or pulling through they'd have to shove and squeeze squeeze this camel through this this tiny little opening in, in the city gates. Now that's a lovely story. It makes the point right Rich people can get to heaven on their knees. The problem though is that it's complete fiction. there's no such there's no such gate. All the other gates in Jerusalem are huge. so why would it, why would some uh, someone even bother to, to go through all that trouble? See, this is the kind of biblical interpretation that eases the force of what Jesus is saying here. It's this kind of hermeneutics. It's called eisegesis, right? You've got an agenda, and you're going to read your agenda into the passage versus an exegesis to where we go, and we want to we want to exegete what the Scripture is actually saying. We want to know what the original author had to say and, and what the... Uh, the original audience, was receiving from that. And I think we do this because, you know, there's something deeply wicked inside all of us that basically says, I can still get to heaven on my own terms. I can still do this. And Jesus says, no, dear friend, you can't. It's it's impossible because, number one, you're not perfect, and number two, you're not forgiven, See, Jesus' is teaching here, it's specifically designed to disturb you. Jesus is trying to rattle your cage. Jesus wants to wake you up from your spiritual slumber. So there is no no reason other than a literal meaning for verse 25. The eye of a needle is the literal eye of a physical needle. The camel is this huge, hairy animal with big, scary teeth and bad breath. Right? They, they, they don't represent some profound, secret spiritual truth. The Gospel of Luke, Luke was a medical doctor, and he used a different Greek word than Mark for needle. He used the word, uh, Mark used the word for sewing needle. Luke used the term for a surgeon's needle. Isn't that cool? It doesn't matter what it doesn't, the point's not the needle. The point is that it's, it's easier for this huge, ginormous uh, camel to go through a very tiny hole in a sharp object. It's easier for that to happen than for someone who has money to get into heaven. Wow. Wow. Key point number one. And this is really important. We should always be suspicious of biblical interpretations that soften Jesus' radical demands. We should be very suspicious of someone who is peddling the word of God to make it easier to get into heaven. And we really, we do, we need to hear Jesus' warning here because uh, this point, we are the most prosperous people in the history of the world. I mean, even the poor in the Verde Valley have cell phones. I was a pastor in Phoenix, an assistant pastor, a long time ago, and a homeless woman walks into the church, and she starts telling me her story, and all of a sudden, ring, 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 ring. Do you have a cell phone? She answers it right in front of me. Yeah, I'll be right there. We are the most prosperous, right? Y'all with me on that? The poor, guys, the poor have cell phones. That's crazy. And that brings me to my my next key point. According to Jesus, wealth is an obstacle for anyone who wants to get into heaven. Scripture has a lot to say about money. Have you ever done a, a Bible study or a theme on wealth as you read through the Word of God. Um, if you if you find yourself continually worried about money, I would encourage you to do that. It's the kind that kind of study, by the way, that's going to radically change and permanently change your view on money. Um, from a practical standpoint, it's not hard. All you have to do is take a green highlighter and every time. Uh, God talks about money, just just highlight it. And then when you you get done reading the Word of God, you just put all of those verses in some type of uh, category and see what the Lord's going to teach you. That'll radically change the way that you think about money. How many verses, those of you without my notes, how many verses are in the Bible about money? Shout it out. Take a guess. I hear a 45. 212. 500. 500. Getting closer. You guys are a long way off. 2,350. 2,350. God has a lot to say about money. How many verses on faith and prayer? Give me a number, somebody. Three, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, you're going the wrong way, 500. So we've got 500 on faith and prayer. We have 2,350 verses on money. So why does God talk about money more than four times as much as faith and prayer? Why does he do that? Key point number three, because our heart is attached to our wallet. Our heart is attached to our wallet. Jesus says this, Mark chapter 4, verse 19. The worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things, they come in and they choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. So what happens when you're choking? (sighs) You can't can't do anything, right? You're gasping for air. You you most certainly are unfruitful. Matthew 6, 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. You got bugs that are going to eat your stuff. That's not good. Thieves are going to break in and steal. Why? Because you you have more than they do. Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth, moth, nor rust destroys, and where thieves they don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One more, Luke chapter sixteen, verse thirteen: No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he's going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. And yet God loves you so much, he'll give you the space to try. He'll give you the space to try. You're going to be the, the, the one guy to prove him wrong, right? That you can have God and money. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. This is so good. Give me poverty nor wealth. Feed me with food that I need. Otherwise, I, I might have too much. I might deny you saying who is the Lord. See, the central issue is, is not money. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 10, it's the love of money. It's the love of money. <laughs> so for those of you that think that I'm picking on you this morning, it's not your stuff, okay? It's the love, it's your heart. And it's, it's, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and people crave it. And some have wandered away from the faith, and they've pierced themselves with, with many griefs. Money's not the issue. Loving it is. Loving any, anything besides the Lord Jesus Christ is an idol, right? Key point number four, those who are ruled by money cannot be ruled by God. Those who are ruled, those who are dominated by money, you can't be ruled by God. So Jesus did not envy the rich here. Instead, he pities them. Jesus knew that wealth puts a terrible handicap on on our relationship with him. But that's not how the crowd sees it, right? Verse 26, so Jesus says this, They were even more astonished, saying to one another, "Ah, Then who's going to be saved? So they went from being astonished in verse 24 to be even more astonished in verse 26. So this question from the crowd and and the disciples, it really shows how ingrained their their prosperity theology is. Because Jesus' proverb, it's not lost on the crowd. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew he, he wasn't talking about this silly little invisible gate to get into the city of Jerusalem. Their reaction here in verse 26 proves that. So picture the crowd just kind of erupting with all these questions. They're asking Jesus, they're asking one another, well, if a rich man can't be saved, because I've been taught from, from my bar mitzvah at 13 years old that uh, being rich is a blessing from God. But if a rich man, you're telling me, Jesus, that he can't be saved, then who can? Who can? Who can? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, well, with man, that's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. So Jesus looks at them again. Jesus is looking at everyone with great intensity. It's similar to the look that Jesus gave the rich young ruler from last week when he went to, when Jesus told him to go sell everything that he had. Jesus examined his face. His countenance. So Jesus, it's like He waits for everybody to settle down, and then He answers their question. And Jesus makes it so clear that salvation, your entrance into heaven, is utterly and totally the work of Almighty God. Not your work. Apart from the grace of God, it is impossible for any man, especially a rich man, to enter God's kingdom. Humanly speaking, no one can be saved by his own efforts. But here's the good news. What we can't do for ourselves, God did for us. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, right? That everyone who believes in him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Now, this doesn't mean that the whole world is going to be saved. It means that there is one savior for the whole world. Verse 28. So here's Peter. Here's Peter again. Jesus, we've left everything and we followed you. You know, Peter's just that guy that says what everybody else is thinking, right? Peter's asking, well, what's in it for us? Needless to say, this isn't really a a deep, profound theological question. He says, uh, he's speaking for the whole, the whole group here, the 12 disciples. He says, we, that's emphatic. He says, we have left everything for you. Jesus, are you rebuking me because I've, I've got a little money from the fishing business? Is that, is that what's going on here? See, from Peter's perspective, uh, perspective Peter and the, the other 11 disciples, they did what the rich young ruler did not. They left. They left everything to follow him. Verse 29, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Peter, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. That's not going to receive a hundred times more, more houses, more brothers, more sisters, more mothers and children in fields. Now, don't get too excited about that because all that stuff comes with persecution. And here's here's the other thing. And eternal life in this age and to come. So Jesus answers Peter's question with great assurance. It's like Jesus says, this is as good as done. So when you come to Jesus in childlike faith, when you repent from your sins and you believe that that His death and His burial and His resurrection satisfied God's wrath for your sin, right for your rebellion against God, not only does God save you, but saves you, but now He adopts you into His family, because all of us we're a part of this this thing called the church, we're the body of Christ. Unfortunately, many people lose their earthly families when they become Christians. But Jesus says, you know what, guys? You've got got a new heavenly family here. I don't know about you. I like Jesus' math. If you notice here, he doesn't say 100% more. He says 100 times more. In other words, this is not about math. Your house is gone. Don't worry about it. You've got got hundreds more doors now open to you because of your church family. Your brother has walked away from you because you're now a Christian. Don't worry about it. You've got thousands upon thousands of brothers who now will stand with you. You have a church. Verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So once again, earthly roles are turned on its head. In heaven. So, those who have much in this world, um, those who are Christians and they don't steward their wealth in a godly way, they're going to have little in heaven. Those who have little now, they're going to have much. Y'all excited about that? (laughs) I can tell. Everybody, calm down. I usually don't quote atheists in my message, but I have to quote Mark Twain here. He says, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Here's the thing that I, I want you to understand today, guys. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of Lights. Everything that you have today is from God. Everything. Everything. Not just, not just material stuff, but your health, right? I mean, the very air that you breathe, when, when was the last time that you thanked God for breathing his air? Everything comes from him. If you've got money, praise God. By the way, don't, please don't feel any, I, I've tried to make this message as lighthearted as I can today because it's, we all get uptight about money but please don't feel any judgment. It, it, it's one of these things to where I, it's a heart issue. Y'all on track with me there? Okay. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the word of God says, this is, this is the apostle Paul to Pastor Tim, and he says, Tim, I want you to instruct those who are rich in this present age, don't be arrogant, but you are to set their hope on the, not, not to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. But on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. It's important to note here that wealth, it naturally is going to work against us. And if we're immature in our faith, that's going to pervert our interpretation of the Word of God. And if we're not being discipled, if we're not plugged in over time, we know the price of everything and yet we value nothing. And one of the most tragic things about wealth is that because it constantly goes against the grain, it constantly pushes us back on on coming to God as a dependent child, completely helpless. When was the last time you, you held a newborn in your in your arms? That's how we are to come to God. They, they don't do anything, right? They're cute for about two minutes and then you can give them back. <laughs> Jesus said this to the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17. Jesus says, "You guys say that I'm rich, that I, I've, I've become wealthy and I need nothing and yet you don't realize, you can't see it. You've got this blind spot that you are wretched. Wretched? Yeah. You're pitiful. Say, what? Pitiful? Yeah. You're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So all that to say, dear friends, be very careful with your attitude towards money, because key point number five is this. No Christian is immune from falling in love with money. And you can take that last word out of there and put any idol that you're struggling with. No Christian is immune from falling in love with money. And one of the most dangerous things that we can do is to over-spiritualize this sin. You know, God, if you would give me some more money, I could uh, give more away. I could help the poor and build houses and, you know, we can rationalize and justify our idol of money all day long. And we can even use scripture to back it up, just like the Pharisees did. So all of that to say is be very careful with your heart on this issue, because key point number six is this. People who love money, they have plenty to live on, but little to live for. People who love money, people who crave money, people who are constantly worried about money, people who desire money and lust for money and for more and more and more. They've got plenty to live on, but they've got little to live for. Once again, the, the reality is loving the money. In all seriousness, if you have questions, Uh, about this lesson, about Jesus, about the gospel. There's a prayer room through the foyer and and to the right. We would love to answer those questions, spend time with you, and and pray with you. Please pray with me. So, Father, I, I would ask that you please forgive us for putting our faith and our trust in ourselves and in our stuff and in our money. Forgive us, Lord, um, that we, how quickly we forget that you are the the Father of lights and every good gift does come from you. We have it so much better than we deserve. Father, forgive us for our sins. And we want to thank you right now for the roof that's over our heads. We want to thank you right now for the food that's in the, the fridge. We want to thank you right now for the church family and our friends. We want to thank you for the cars that got us here, the gas that's in them. We want to thank you for the food that we're going to eat today. Lord God, continue now as as we sing one last song and and we worship you, Lord Jesus, to do some business with you this week on this subject. Draw uh, Draw us closer to you as a child, and it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.